We finished up our look at gambling last week. We'll do one more quick topic. This was the only other one that uh, had a lot of votes when we passed around that list so long ago. Capital punishments. Um, everybody wants to talk about killing people, I guess, but uh, there we are. This one will be a pretty short one. I don't anticipate it lasting more than this session just because, honestly, the scriptures are pretty straightforward about a lot of the issues regarding this, or at least the issue itself, as we'll see, the, uh, the real questions for Christians about capital punishment have less to do with whether scripture allows for it and more about, well, what do we do with what scripture allows for and how do we deal with it on a case-by-case -case basis? Um, then next week, we'll, uh, we'll start up a longer series again, probably look at what uh, Lutherans say about the place of being a good person in life. Because, of course, we Lutherans like to talk a lot about grace, uh, forgiveness, so much that uh, sometimes we have a hard time fitting in what it means to be a good person in there. But that'll be next week we'll pick up on, assuming we finish this today. So, capital punishments. First of all, just by show of hands, how many of you think that's a good idea to execute criminals, ever? I'm on the fence. I don't really... Not a lot of strong supporters here, it seems like. If I, I know for a fact that uh, if you would have asked that to the congregation I was in back growing up in Nebraska, you would have had very few hands that did not go up. They, they just are were in that particular neck of the woods very much more in favor of it as an idea. Um, apparently, if you would ask people in Texas, you'd get a lot of support. Well, it's supposed to, or we're taking care of it. It's kind of for the rest of our lives. They're not right. Well, and there's issues around it that uh, I mean. I guess one question that's worth asking is, since you guys are either on the fence or not particularly huge fans of the idea, why do you feel that way? Well, I guess I'm more suspicious of our judicial system at times as to whether or not they get the right verdict. I mean, if, it, if someone is truly guilty, you know, of, of killing someone or, you know, I guess depending upon the crime, but uh, I have no problem with capital punishment. It's, so it's not that you're in principle opposed to the idea, it's just you practically have severe doubts about the ability to always get yeah. a correct conviction. Yeah. Sure. Well, I have to admit, when there's a mass murder and he goes into a building and is shooting down people, and then the cops happen to shoot him and he dies, it's like, I admit, I feel like he had it coming. Okay, so there are cases, and by the way, it's, it's worth saying that uh, when we're talking about capital punishment, we could be talking about two different things. We can take a broad approach where we're saying when the government executes its citizens, either at the end of a long court trial or as a police action, that's what we're talking about. Or you could take the more narrow approach and say we're only talking about after considered deliberation in the courtroom. Um, and we'll just exclude the whole question of police action. It's fair to say that for certain purposes, it's it might be more useful to talk about it more broadly. Is it even in principle allowable for the government to ever inflict death on its own citizens? Gala points out, it's hard not to feel that there are certain cases where it's appropriate for police, say, to execute, say, the person who is clearly, he's on TV live executing people all around him. 
There's no question about whether he's guilty or not. Everybody with eyes in their heads knows he's actively murdering people right then and there. It's hard to feel like that's an inappropriate thing for the police to shoot him to stop him if there's no obvious other way to stop him, right? So that's another position. Um, if, we're, if we include police action in this, most people would probably agree there's times or places where it's hard to fault the police for terminating the life in that particular instance. Granted, of course, there's all kind, obviously all kinds of issues where we can argue about when and whether police action is appropriate. But in principle, we can imagine instances where most people would say, yeah, that was probably fair for the police to shoot to kill that particular person. Um, any other thoughts about hesitancy? If, especially if we want to limit it just to the court issue, that, okay, we caught the criminal, he's no longer an immediate threat to the community, can we therefore uh, execute him? Because that is the big difference between, say, a police action like Gail is talking about and the court action. One is clearly there are certain instances where you've got an immediate danger where it's not clear how else to deal with it. The other the person in jail is almost certainly not an immediate threat in the same way. No, but when he was out, of, out, he might have been a real threat, you know, and, you know, he was in jail because he, he committed a crime. Okay, so there's the fact of what do you do with the person who at least theoretically has been rightly convicted of a crime, of a serious crime? Um, is it legitimate to punish via execution? And again, we're just ask, I'm just asking about your feelings about it. I'm not saying they're right or wrong or anything like that. I'm just asking. Well, put yourself in the, I mean, here it seems like so much on the news anymore where they're releasing felons who are, have been convicted of serious crimes and being released way early, you know, turning them loose and then they're obviously they're going right out and committing crimes and murdering people. So if you happen to be a family member of, uh, of one of those who had, you know, say got murdered from someone who got released early, I think you'd be very uh, pro-capital punishment. Okay, and there's, there's a good point too. Different people who have a different relationship to the criminal justice system will have very different ideas about this. For instance, the family who uh, has seen something like that happen, where somebody who almost everybody is pretty sure has killed members of their family, serves their term, whether gets released early or serves uh, a lighter term than death and gets out, um, they might have mixed feelings about whether that person should ever be allowed to walk the streets again. By the same token, we can admit uh, there have been people who have been wrongfully convicted, or at least by all accounts it seems like they have been, and uh, families who have seen them executed probably have very strong feelings about capital punishment as well. Which is just to highlight the fact, there's obviously a lot of different views of this for a lot of different reasons. So that's worth pointing out. Um, but let's just talk about what the... Uh, First of all, let's just start with at a society where we're at, on a general level. Um, at the federal level, clearly, capital punishment is allowed. We, we all know it's legal in, at the federal level for capital punishment to occur, though it's for a, very, uh, a relatively small list of kinds of crimes, by the way. All of them involve murder and or treason of some kind. Those are, I mean, out of the 42, if you look through the list, uh, you can look it up on the internet, all of them involve murder, either it is a certain malicious kind, or 
murder of certain kinds of people, or while doing other serious crimes, or espionage, treason, and that kind of stuff. So very serious crimes. By the way, over time, our society and our government has narrowed the range of offenses for which you could be executed. For instance, in 18th century uh, Britain, there were over 300 kinds of crimes you could be put to death for. Now it's only 42, and they're all pretty serious. I think we could, and heck, if you go to the Old Testament civil laws, you could be killed for breaking the Sabbath. Those are Old Testament civil laws. We'll talk about that in a minute. Just to say, we've narrowed the definition as a society to do this. On that score, it's also exceedingly rare. I think uh, when I looked this morning, I read that there were only 50 people on the uh, death row at the federal level, which is a pretty small number of people, all things considered. And as you know, being on death row does not mean you are necessarily even going to be executed, at least not anytime soon. Uh, we are very hesitant as a society on the federal level to do that. By the way, the method that the federal government chooses to do this is uh, to follow the method of whatever the state is that the person was convicted in. So if you're convicted in Nebraska of a crime that the feds consider worthy of capital offense and the judge sentences you to that, you get the uh, Nebraska method of uh, uh, execution, which until recently did allow for electrocution still. Um, one of the very few states that allowed for that. So most states are lethal injection. But not all states allow for it. Illinois is one of them that you probably know um, does not allow for capital punishment. Uh, they stopped that officially in 2011. So what is the, by the way, what does the federal government do if a person is convicted of a capital offense in the state of Illinois? Well, the federal judge or the judge over the case will choose a state that allows for execution move the person to that state, and then execute them according to the method of that state. So nobody gets executed in that way in Illinois since 2011. By the way, it's also worth saying there is no state that outlaws ex capital punishments in the view of police action. That is to say, every state allows for the possibility that there are immediate threats that police sometimes need to deal with, and it is lawful for police to shoot and kill in the line of duty under certain criteria. Of course, as we all know, I don't hardly need to say, there's a huge national conversation about when those things are appropriate, but I don't think anybody is overtly saying that it can never happen, and there's no circumstance where police action could never result in the death of a human being. We just know that that's how the world works. Sometimes there's horribly dangerous people immediately threatening all kinds of other people. So that's where we stand legally as a uh, nation and as a state. I don't know if it surprises any of you to learn any of that, but there we are. The big two questions I want to talk about, though, isn't what uh, the government allows for, but first of all, what's the LCMS position on this? And then secondly, um, as we'll see, is almost the same thing, but it's worth making a kind of distinction and allowing for the possibility that there's could be need for correction in the LCMS. The LCMS, what's their position on capital punishment? And then scripture, what's the scriptural statements about capital punishment? The LCMS is actually fairly straightforward. If you go to your small catechism, at least the 1991 edition and the most recent one, and you flip to the back where it's explaining the fifth commandment, fifth commandment, by the way, you shall not kill um, or commit murder, depending on which translation you're using. 
it, in, that, in the explanation of that commandment, there's a question, and I'll just read it here off the sheet, where it's, uh, the question is, does anyone have the authority to take another person's life? And the answer, very simply, is yes, lawful governments, as God's servants, may execute criminals and fight just wars. And the verse it cites, of course, the catechism, as you know, um, always cites a couple of verses, not all possible verses, but at least a couple verses to say that here's a reason we say this. Cites Romans um, chapter 13, the government has not been given the sword in vain. So quite straightforwardly, the catechism explanation states, yes, lawful government in principle has the authority to execute criminals. We'll set aside fight just wars, but just note that it also allows for that. And it's not just the explanation of the catechism. By the way, if you ever uh, look at a catechism, there's two parts in all of our catechisms. There's the small catechism itself, which Luther wrote, which has just the command, like in the Ten Commandments, it's those shorter things that you were memorizing, no doubt, back in the day, um, like... The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. That's it. That's the only explanation the actual catechism gets. Then if you turn a little further back, the thick part is what uh, the synod puts out as an extra explanation. This is not a part of the small catechism. It's an explanation that the synod approved and put onto it to help answer questions and help you understand more about what these commandments and other parts of the catechism say. So this isn't technically part of the, shall we say, confessional documents of the LCMS. It's just what kids often learn in confirmation. However, the confessional documents are not much different. In fact, they say almost the exact same thing. Just I'll quote you part of Augsburg Confession, Article 16. By the way, Augsburg Confession, part of the Book of Concord, which is the <coughs> official statement of what Lutheran church believes, teaches, and confesses. We believe that these confessions are correct expositions of Scripture. They simply restate what the Scripture actually teaches, and so we believe that these are correct. Here's what it says. Concerning public order and secular government, it is taught that all political authority, orderly government, laws, and good order in the world are created and instituted by God, and that Christians may, without sin, exercise political authority be princes and judges, pass sentences, and administer justice according to imperial and other existing laws, punish evildoers with the sword, wage just wars, serve as soldiers, buy and sell, take required oaths, possess property, be married, etc. Condemned here are the Anabaptists who teach that none of these things indicated above is Christian. By the way, Anabaptists these days, people like Mennonites and Amish, who believe that we're not allowed to be involved in any of those kinds of activities. So straightforwardly, the key segment here is that it says, we believe that God overtly allows governments to punish evildoers with the sword. Now you might say, well, that just says punish. It doesn't necessarily say kill. Well, don't worry, Luther's got us covered in the large catechism, which is also part of the Book of Concord. And I'll just quote you two statements from that first. God has delegated his authority of punishing evildoers to civil magistrates, that is, officials in the government. And more clearly, and a little bit later, we have seen that the fifth commandment forbids us to injure anyone physically, and yet an exception is made of the hangman. By virtue of his office, 
He does not do his neighbor good, but only harm and evil. Yet, he does not sin against God's commandment, because God, of his own accord, instituted that office. And as God warns in the fifth commandment, God has reserved to himself the right of punishment. What Luther is uh, writing there is that uh, even the person who's actually doing the deed of executing the person, the hangman in those days, they didn't have lethal injection, obviously, who would you know, kick the stool out from under them so that they would die. This is the person who, by the fifth commandment, if you just heard, do not kill, there's a killer breaking God's law. Luther says, no, in fact, even though he is actually terminating the life of this person, he is doing it because God has delegated to this person the authority, or rather the job, of punishing this evildoer. The hangman is acting with God's own authority. And if God authorizes you to do something, it's not a sin. Even if, um, without the authorization of God, it would be a sin. So, for instance, to take an Old Testament example, Israel, for instance, uh, after uh taking over Jericho, God had told everybody, don't take anything from the city. It's all devoted to God. One guy, Achan, decided, hey, there's a lot of good stuff here. I'm just going to bury some in my tent. Well, they eventually caught him up, and uh, the Joshua inquired of God, well, what should we do with this guy? What did you think God told him to do? Put him to death. Was Josh, were the Israelites breaking the fifth commandment by killing him? I mean, the fifth commandment says, do not kill. Right. God, the giver of the law, is able to make exceptions to the law. He is the one who has the authority to give or take life. And if he delegates to you the authority to take life, then it's not you taking the life per se. It's God acting through you. You are using God's authority to do the deed. That's what Luther's argument is here. So that's the official position of the Lutheran confessions, and therefore the position of the LCMS. In principle, capital punishment is allowable. And in fact, um, governments are called and required to punish evildoers somehow or other. Um, we can Not necessarily that they have to kill every evildoer, obviously, but it is to say that they are required to carry out the task of punishing evildoers, and in that also in, have the authority to execute some of those evildoers. Clear? That's the Lutheran position. That's the position of our church. Body. Sometime back here, not too long ago, they released a bunch of prisoners, I guess because prisons were too full or whatever. How many of those people that were released were really actually killers of other people, or were they just in there for... Right, and that raises the, the good question of how do you know if a person was guilty, um, and were they guilty of the right kinds of things to... I mean, we'll cut into those questions in just a bit here. <laughs> Because that's, that's where we get to the question of, okay, granted, that's the Lutheran position. How does it apply on the ground when you're dealing with actual instances of people convicted of crimes? And that's what we'll come to it towards the end of this lesson. But let's take another step and ask, well, what does the scripture actually teach about this? Okay, granted, that's the Lutheran position, but just because it's Lutheran, does that mean I have to believe it? <laughs> well, remember, we only believe the Lutheran teachings to the extent that, and I'll even go say, because the Lutheran teachings are the scriptural teachings. So we have to actually demonstrate that these are the scriptural teachings. 
And again, it's actually fairly straightforward in Scripture. It would be very hard to argue that the Scripture condemns killing criminals by the government. It would be extremely hard to argue that. Turn to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, for instance, to just see what God says as a general fact about how he's going to deal with this world. Whoever sheds the, sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Now, that is a statement um, uh, of God about uh, as a warning and a condemnation against taking the life of another human being. If you kill another, if you kill a person then by a human people, you will be killed. That's a God-given curse. So that is to say, there's this general statement in Scripture um, about the way that the reality of God's judgment plays out and how God intends his judgment to play out. When you shed the blood of another person, God is going to ensure that oftentimes your blood will also be shed by another human being as punishment for taking the life of somebody who was created in the image of God. Now, of course, that doesn't go all the way to asserting clearly, therefore, governments have the authority to be this person. I mean, God might just be saying here in a general sense, like, well, if I, karma kind of thing, if I hit, if I kill Bill tonight, maybe I'll get hit by a car tomorrow. <laughs> maybe that's what God means if that's all you had to go on. But that's not all we have to go on. On the one hand, Old Testament civil law, and this is important. What, I, what do I mean when I say Old Testament civil law? What I mean is the laws that Moses gave specifically for the people of Israel organizing their life together as a society. These are laws that only applied to, I guess you might say, the political order of Israel. It didn't apply universally to all people. Not all people were commanded to offer specifically these sacrifices, specifically to uh, do these kinds of things towards each other, abstain from these kinds of things, and so on and so forth. Only the law, only Israel was given those commands, and God apparently didn't hold other nations accountable for not obeying those commands. These were things for ordering the social life of Israel in their relationships to each other. But one of those but a lot of those were very clearly staying. This is, if somebody in your society does this, kill them. Go to Numbers, uh, just as one among many instances, go to Numbers 35, 29 through 30. These are to be legal requirements for you throughout the generations to come wherever you live. Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer, only on the testimony of witnesses. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one. All right. So there's a very interesting law that uh, God gives to all the people of Israel for as long as the, the people of Israel endure as a nation. So up until the time of Christ we're talking about. Again, important qualifier. Because these were only meant for the kingdom of Israel as a people, we want to be careful about extrapolating this as a rule that all nations are supposed to follow. We're just using this to illustrate that clearly, at least for his own people, God was not opposed to the idea of capital punishments in that age. Um, in fact, God lays out both that capital punishment must be, and it's important to say must. This is not you may kill that person. It's 
you must put that person to death. So he positively requires capital punishment in a specific kind of case, first of all. It's not whenever somebody does something wrong, what specific crime does God point out here? Murder. When, you ki when somebody kills somebody else, you kill that person. Again, only for Israel we're talking here specifically. But he also even gives a, a, what you might say a check against wrongful accusations. He already gives a standard that you have to meet to establish that a person is guilty of murder. You can't just do it on one witness, which is a good thing, because otherwise, if I didn't happen to like Sue, I could go, hey, I saw Sue kill some random guy over in the field. <laughs> okay, Sue, guess you get to die. <laughs> no, it has to be on the testimony of multiple witnesses before you can entertain the charge. So already there's, there's both not just the, the allowance and the requirements of capital punishment, but there's also this, a statement that it's only for certain kinds of infractions, and it needs to meet certain standards of proof that it actually occurred, already laid out in that Old Testament code. Now again, we'll reiterate, this does not net mean that is the law for all people of all times and all places. And boy, here in America, we got to get on board with that and pass laws that mean if somebody kills somebody, then all we need is two witnesses to say, hey, they killed somebody, and then we have to kill that person. This is only for the people of Israel at the time. And by the way, it was a fairly high standard of judgment for the time and a fairly strong limitation on when to kill people for the time compared to other societies. But again, I mainly point this out to point out that God obviously, in principle, was not opposed to capital punishment back in the Old Testament, and that he also required, even then, standards of judgments, kinds of crimes for which it could be imposed. Now, in the New Testament, let, this is the one that really concerns us. How does the New Testament square with the idea of capital punishment? First of all, it's worth saying there's nothing in the New Testament quite like those Old Testament codes that say the government should kill people in these cases. It's just not there. But the New Testament isn't silent on issues like this. Uh, turn to Romans 13. We've read this before in other Bible studies, so we don't need to belabor a lot of these points. But I'll just read you this uh, quick section here. Ver 13 verse 4, where Paul is writing about how we need to submit to the governing authorities. He says, for he, that is the governing authority, is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Like we said when we were talking about the whole church and state stuff, the government is explicitly, Paul is explicitly saying, governing authorities, not just the Christian one, remember, he's talking about Roman pagan governing authorities, is God's servant to do good partly by punishing those who do evil as agents of God's wrath. Remember, when we're saying agent here, we're meaning God himself sends them to act on his behalf. They are doing God's work as God's way of punishing evildoers. So the government is authorized quite clearly here in Romans 13, to punish evildoers. Again, we, you could say, well, maybe that doesn't include capital punishment. That'd be a hard argument to make for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that Scripture never seems to imply 
or state that uh, executions happening even in the New Testament were in principle wrong. There are tons of executions recorded in the New Testament. And never once does any of the, do any of the apostles or Jesus, for instance, when he's up against Pilate, say, you know, Pilate, you don't actually have the authority to execute me. Um, you're sinning by executing me or anyone else. Because, not just because you're wrong to execute me, I'm not a criminal, but because execution is wrong. Strangely, Jesus never makes that a statement. In fact, when, when, Paul, when Pilate makes the claim, don't you know that I have the power to kill you or set you free? Jesus says, you wouldn't have any authority over me except unless it was given to you from above. Strangely, Jesus doesn't contradict him and say, technically, you don't have authority to kill anybody. He says, you wouldn't have it if it wasn't given to you by my father. Strangely, scripture never negates the ability and the authority of any civil government to execute people, as though executing people is strictly and always wrong. It just doesn't, despite many opportunities. In fact, it seems to imply the opposite, that they are allowed to, and acting within their rights. However, of course, it does strongly condemn, like for instances where the government executes people wrongly, that is to say, innocent people, or abuses its power. Um, Luke 3.20 is a great instance. Um, we don't necessarily have to turn there, but it's where uh, John the Baptist, it's telling about John the Baptist uh, baptizing people, preparing the way for the Lord. And there at the very end of this little section where John has uh, warned people to flee the coming wrath and so on and so forth, it says uh, this neat little phrase here where, uh, let me just read it to you so it's... Uh, so I don't misquote it. <clears throat> but when John, 19 and 20, when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other things he had done. So when John was calling down King Herod for being a bad person and doing a lot of horrible things, Herod added this to them all. That is to say, Herod did this additional evil thing. He locked John up in prison. That is to say, here, Scripture roundly talks about what Herod did to John as evil. Because Herod started punishing John as though John had done evil, even though John had not done evil. So Scripture clearly does put limits on the authority of the Scripture, precisely be, or of the government, precisely because the government acts as God's agent to carry out his wrath on evildoers, means the government does not have a blank check to do whatever it wants in punishing people. It can't just kill people arbitrarily. It has to act as God's agent. That is to say, it has to punish actual evildoers for actual evil. Make sense? Which, of course, brings us to the big question that uh, a lot of you have already been raising. Granted, Scripture seems to clearly, not just seems, it just clearly allows for the possibility of capital punishment. Governments are authorized and required to punish evildoers. And it's fairly clear from Scripture that within that general call by God for governments to punish evildoers is included even the authority to execute them. So how does that apply to specific cases? Does that mean, therefore, that every time uh, the police nab a shoplifter, well, off to the, uh, the lethal injection bed with you? Well, that's where the questions get difficult. How do you apply this 
general truth that governments do allow for capital punishment, that scripture does authorize capital punishments to the specific facts of when should we, whether we actually even ought to act on that authority. Christians, by the way, can disagree about this in good conscience. That is to say, just because uh, people in Nebraska are all enthusiastic, the people in my congregation back in Nebraska were mostly enthusiastic supporters of the death penalty in probably a broader range of cases than, say, people here, um, doesn't mean that you guys are sinning and that you're clearly wrong. And it doesn't mean that they're clearly right. By the same token, it doesn't mean just because they're a little more enthusiastic about it, they're clearly wrong and sinning, and that you're clearly right. This is where we say Scripture allows for a legitimate difference of opinion um, and different views that fall within being able to be a Christian in good conscience. Why do we say that? Especially since we know um, Scripture clearly allows for capital punishment. Shouldn't, therefore, every Christian be okay with the government killing criminals? as you've already brought up. There's a lot of other questions that go into it, and frankly, Scripture just doesn't deal with a lot of those questions. For instance, there's differences of opinion that allow for the possible grounds of the fact that the government, even though it's allowed to do this, does that mean it's required to execute criminals? If God allows you to execute criminals, does that mean God positively requires you to execute criminals? executed all of them there wouldn't be anybody left in prison <laughs> <laughs> cemeteries would be full sure well and we can even we can even throw into that question um let's even grant that there are there are only certain crimes that we could in good conscience support the death penalty for for instance if i if i sped on the highway that probably isn't a good reason to kill me um but o- let's just say only because i murdered somebody that's the only re- legitimate grounds Just because the government is allowed to kill me for killing somebody else, does that mean the government must kill me when I kill somebody else? No. In the Old Testament for Israel, yes, but only for Old Testament Israel. There's no positive requirement that the government must punish evildoers in specifically this way. And which is to say, governments are allowed to self-regulate to a certain degree, how they exercise this whole duty to punish evil. They do have to punish evildoers. But they're allowed to self-direct to a large degree. God gives them the freedom to come up with how they're going to do that. And so there's a room for difference of opinion about whether it's a good idea or a bad idea for the government as a the government to decide to either execute some criminals or to not execute criminals at all. It's legitimate, that is to say, for the state of Illinois to come to the position we are, we are legally going to disallow executing criminals who are in our custody. They're legally, not just legally allowed to do that, but there's no scriptural grounds we could point to to say they're definitively wrong and forsaking their calling as governors. By the same token, um, There's nothing in the scripture that would allow us to say to the state of Nebraska, you are wrong for allowing the execution of criminals. They're allowed to organize freely in different ways to punish evil um, in appropriate ways that they deem are appropriate ways. Again, not a blank check, but within a certain set of limits, they're able to do that. 
by the same token, um, there's the very big question and the very real question, which scripture gives us very little help on. Granted that governments are allowed to, what kinds of crimes are worthy of it? Now, if you would have asked uh, civil authorities back about 300 years ago, they would have had a quite a long list of what crimes are uh, bad enough. I think we mentioned in, the sun, in the Sunday school that uh, back in the day, Pastors and, and judges and everybody was happy to say, hey, even adultery, kill the adulterer. That's a huge disruption of the social order. The only way to put a stop to these huge disruptions of the social order, this horrible offense to families and um, all decency, is to, get rid, is to strongly discourage people from doing it by killing people when they do it. Using ex capital punishment as a means of uh, discouragement. These days... We have a much stricter idea about when it's okay to kill a person. Um, and, there's no, and it's not clear from Scripture what the line is. At the very least, we, we, could, we could make a good case from Scripture that a safe Christian perspective would to say, be to say, primarily when the blood of another person has been shed. <laughs> that is to say in cases of involving murder. That's a fairly safe limit scripturally because at least you're going on the general statements in Genesis 9. But if you're going beyond that, you're on more tenuous ground scripturally. It's not to say you're necessarily wrong, it's just to say you have to do a lot more work to defend your position. But then that also raises the question, what kinds of murder? Does that mean if I uh, accidentally uh, got run into by a deer and it swerved me over into the car coming into the traffic and I was responsible for the death of that person, I should be put to death? Accidental killing? There's a reason, by the way, even the Old Testament allowed for um, people who accidentally killed another person to evade being killed. Um, but the point is, these aren't easy questions to ask because after all, we do want to remember one very important scriptural point laid out in Genesis 9 and many other places. Human beings were originally created in the image of God, right? Our life is important. It is a gift of God and to be respected. Terminating the life of another person should never be done lightly, even when you are authorized to do it. And unless you are authorized to do it, it should never be done, right? And so then the question that the government, and I don't envy the governing authorities this question that they have to wrestle with, when is a crime severe enough that we can justify terminating the life of a person who is made in the image of God? Clearly, Scripture allows for the probability that there are such cases, but you've got to figure out when. Modern legal thinking tends to err on the side of caution, which is a good thing, I personally think. That's a personal opinion, that it's better to have um, a more limited allowance for when you execute a criminal than a broader one. Because after all, there are ways to, um, as we know, restrain people from being a continued threat to society without executing them. They're no doubt expensive. <laughs> they no doubt take a lot of time, but that's also part of a way of saying we still respect the light um, and the dignity of a person that God has made, even if we have to sustain huge costs to prevent this person from causing more damage. Now, is it wrong if the government takes a slightly broader approach and says, well, we're going to actually go a little further than Pastor Rutherford thinks is appropriate and execute a slightly broader range of people? No, you can differ on these opinions. Any thoughts or questions about that? And, of course, then there's the other question. 
um, that Bill raised, for instance, not just about which crimes do we execute people for and consider um, severe enough that they override the worth of the human life we're ending, but also the question of the burden of proving that the person is actually sufficiently guilty of the crime they're accused of. I mean, we all know that there have been people who have been on death row who were demonstrated quite clearly later to almost certainly have been innocent. And that's not a good position to be in. You don't want to be the, the person who, who convicted and executed a person who turns out to not have been guilty. And so there are Christians who argue, granted, it's allowable. Granted, it may even be a good idea in certain cases, but it's so hard to prove that a person has committed those things that it might be safer to simply disallow it entirely. That's one valid Christian opinion. On the other side of the coin um, is another valid Christian um, position. We act with the best standards of... You can never predict for sure whether you are 100% right about anything, but we have high standards of evidence. And it's more worthwhile to discourage this crime, and by the way, it's, not, it's worth talking this way, punish the cr criminal for the crime, actually visit justice for the sake of those who were wronged on the head of the person, um, on the grounds that we have a sufficiently good reason at the time to suspect that this person was the one who did it. Granted, we may have been wrong, and that's a travesty, but the fact is, we still, by and large, have excellent standards of evidence, and those are vanishingly rare instances. If you were going to not fulfill that duty or not carry out that duty on the chance and the reality that sometimes, in a vanishingly rare proportion of the time, we make mistakes, what would you ever do in life? Because most of the things you do thinking they're right at the time are always run the risk of being actually wrong. So there's another valid Christian position that granted we want to have high standards and maintain them and sometimes we're wrong but the benefits so to speak outweigh the costs make sense then again then there's the uh, one that a lot of people talk about uh, what methods are appropriate for execution strangely scripturally this one is probably the least fraught morally speaking because um all across the board, again, Scripture doesn't seem to have a huge deal of concern about the way you execute the person. We are much more concerned about avoiding pain and suffering than, say, the Scriptures were for people who, who were determined to be worthy of death. It's not to say it open, it, you torture them or cause them needless pain, but, I mean, you think stoning was a pleasant way to die? <laughs> Almost certainly not. <laughs> and yet, that was a favorite go-to directly commanded in the scriptures. Again, the point here is not that to say that, hey, scripture doesn't care how you terminate people. The point was scripture was more, con the way that scripture speaks, it's more concerned about that you terminate people only who deserve to be terminated when you're authorized to do so. The question of how you get the job done, it's just not as concerned about that because precisely because scripture condemns this person as worthy of death and therefore the bigger issue is remove that person from life rather than worry too much about how to do it. And I, so there's that point that scripture doesn't seem to be overridingly concerned with making the transition out of life extremely pleasant for the person who's done evil.
It's not to say that the scripture doesn't care about such things. It's just to say that's not the main concern. But more to the point, let's face it, most modern executions are precisely in a way that tries to prioritize making it painless. And that's a good thing, I'm sure. Um, I think every Christian can agree, where you can limit pain, good. So it's hard to say that uh, to dismiss any and all forms of execution solely on the ground that they might be too painful. Lethal injection, maybe it causes some pain, and no doubt it causes a lot of fear. But if you've decided that this person is worthy of death, the, the almost insignificant amount of pain is a s vastly smaller issue than the question of whether it was right to, to say that this person was worthy of death. Make sense? My point isn't to say that that's an insignificant question. It's to say, compared to the question of whether a person is worthy of death, and this is what I mean when I'm talking about how the Bible speaks. That's a much smaller priority. The big priority is, when is a person worthy of death? How would you decide that? And so on and so forth. Once you've decided that, it's relatively small potatoes deciding how. Make sense? All right, any questions or thoughts about any of that? Right. Like I said, it's a fairly straightforward thing. Um, definitely very live in our uh, political debate, probably very live in our own hearts and heads about what we think is right or not. Um, but it is just to reiterate the main points. Whatever we feel about it, Scripture at the very least allows for it. And therefore, it would be wrong of Christians to simply condemn capital punishment as sinful and evil all the time. However, just as strongly from Scripture, we want to say, just because it's authorized does not excuse us from doing the very important work as Christians of being very careful about operating within a good moral framework that honors life as God's gift and wants to be very concerned about making sure that when you're exercising this authority, it's only done by the right people for the right reasons in highly demonstrably true cases. And of course, all right, then let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever.